Today on Never Was a Gamer, I'm a fantasy colonialist from fantasy Louisiana, and this year is my bastion. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the VO narrator who pays surprisingly close attention to everything I do, Dimitri. I'm not even going to try an accent. I think you've already embarrassed both of us. (laughs) If I had the bastion and could go back in time and undo that (laughs) calamity, I wouldn't. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, yeah, we're talking about bastion today. My bastion. Okay, we got to put a stop to this. <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is the first game in our new arc, which is going to be looking at three games from the indie boom. Yeah. At least what we're calling the indie boom. It was. I think there were many kind of smaller indie booms. Basically, we're looking at games that came out, say, between the 2008 to 2012 timeline. Subtitle of this arc? games michelle expects to like yeah a big change yeah (laughs) nice palate cleanser but as we mentioned on the last one the reason we're doing this is partially a because michelle does expect to like these games you play a lot of indie games Mm -hmm. uh, but you missed you missed a lot of the ones that i think you know brought indie or kind of the indie mindset to the mainstream because as we've established the timeline with me coming back to games Sort of is is around this period, but you know it takes a minute for for a person to catch up. I had to get through all my old JRPGs first. <laughs> yeah, we're actually starting a bit late in the cycle with Bastion, which came out in 2011 on the Xbox 360. As you saw, because as, as part of this, Michelle kind of watched some interviews with with the team, uh, Supergiant Games, who developed it. You know, they were inspired. The people who, who formed that studio were inspired by the success of previous indie games like Braid, which we're going to talk about next time. Uh, but we're starting here for for a few reasons. One is that it comes from a studio that Michelle is very familiar with. Yep. Having played, I think, three of their four games now, inclu- yeah. if we include Bastion. Yep. Um, having recently played Hades and really enjoying it. And Transistor back in the day, yeah. It's also a genre that she's a bit more familiar with, kind of action RPG. And uh, importantly, it, I think this game ties into our conversation from the very last episode uh, about classic beat-em-ups. Because you can definitely see that there's a little bit of a beat 'em up lineage as well with this game, right? It's brawly, kind of, yeah, yeah, right. There's kind of um, isometric 16-bit RPGs like JRPGs, like Secret of Mana. There's some of that DNA. Mm-hmm. There's some dungeon crawler Diablo DNA, and then there's some beat 'em up DNA in here. It all mixes together for Bastion. <laughs> but before we get into Bastion, I think we should set the stage a little bit. Talk about Michelle's history with indie games and and what that means to us. It's a it's a term that seems to be constantly evolving. Right. So when did you first become aware of this category of, of game? So it was definitely early on in my return to games. I think basically after I was caught up on like old Final Fantasies and like a handful of other JRPGs, kind of the next big place that I went was actually largely computer-based indie games, like on on PC or desktop. Um, and, and I think that... Some of the reason for that is partially because I think they seemed a little simpler and more accessible to me than 
some of the other games that were sort of going around. I think I was responding to a colorfulness and, you know, a lot of character, some of the things that I sort of associate with this period of of indie games. Um, and, and I mean, I think something else, too, and we can get into this a bit more, is that for somebody coming in who who kind of stopped after the 16-bit era, I think a lot of these games look familiar to you. Right, right. Yeah, control schemes that I can get my head around, a lot of them not making me do like nuanced camera work, for example. So it, it sort of works as a stepping stone into the current era. I mean, another thing that honestly was a really formative big factor in all this was this was, I think, around the time that uh, Humble Bundles started happening in a big way. Yeah, which initially were Humble Indie Bundles. Right. Or at least that was the main, I think, their main packaging. Right. And so these, you know, they seem to have, I don't know if Humble Bundle has like lost the plot a little bit at, at this point in time, but certainly back then, at least, they they tended to be bundles of like four to eight indie games that, you know, you could specify how much of your money went to the developers versus how much went to, you know, a range of, of charities. And so I picked up, you know, a couple of, of Humble Bundles early on. And even after one or two, like, I suddenly have a Steam library of games that I can dip into and play and sort of get my feet wet. It's almost like a sampler pack. It's like a starter set mm-hmm. of like what's going on right now. Yeah. And you're almost guaranteed to get at least something that you like in there. Yeah. 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 So uh, I played a lot of stuff that came from the Humble Bundles. Um I played a ton of World of Goo, which I was actually very charmed to see, uh, along with Braid, was one of the things that the Supergiant team referenced as as games that they were looking at and playing when they decided to break off and form their own studio. Um, that's a really fun, really charming little physics puzzle game. Um, I did actually play around like one level of Braid and then bounced off of it, which I hope doesn't, you know, foretell, forecast anything about the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I played all of games like Euphoria. I played a ton of uh, Machinarium, which is um, it's a sort of a, a updated point and click adventure. Uh, I played a lot of Peggle uh, and Plants vs Zombies. Um, the not the uh, like Garden Warfare version, the the original like two D ones. Yeah, PopCap Games, which is now no longer indie. Okay. They, they shortly after you played those games, got bought by EA. I mean, that makes sense because that. Like they, those were fun, stupid, small games. Yeah, I mean, I, I played Gone Home, uh, which was sort of one of the first big like walking simulators to hit. Um, and there was also sort of a category of of indie games from this period that uh, I played around with and really liked, but I wasn't yet good enough, I think, like at games to really make a ton of progress in. And so um, I... I loved uh v6 times but you know i i couldn't i wasn't good enough to do anything but kind of play around and like listen to the music uh super meat boy same situation i like that game's design a lot but i was not getting anywhere um and fez i also you know sort of played around but didn't get anywhere near you know solving all of the puzzles so yeah i mean i did i did like a not liking platforming and like obtuse puzzles no, also does not bode well for the next <laughs> few weeks. I didn't say I didn't like platforming. I said at that time, my my coordination was not yet fully, you know, I wasn't fully cooked as the the, mm-hmm. the proper gamer that I am today. So yeah, I mean, I played, so you can see that's, that's you know, a cross section of, of 
a decent range of genres and mechanics and stuff. Um, and I think the thing that really solidified this or my relationship with, I guess, indie game making as a thing that I was going to really follow and care about was um, when Double Fine started making Broken Age, which was a runaway success on Kickstarter. We were backers. And so one of the things that we got was access to this really sort of fulsome documentary about the production of that game that came out in regular installments. And like, you really got a feel for some of the people behind the scenes and some of what goes into it and a little bit of the dynamics of of being an indie studio i loved the finance guy who always had to tell them no he was my favorite character in all of them because i related to him so much um and so i don't know from i really think that was sort of a point when it solidified as like oh this is this is not just a handful of games that i like that happen to be have this in common this is like a space that I kind of care about or like am invested in as, as a place that produces a lot of uh, good and entertaining like art for me. Yeah. And as we found out when we were preparing for this episode, it's not something I actually watched at the time, but Supergiant similarly documented their production process of Bastion and teamed up with Giant Bomb to do a series of smaller little, you know, documentaries about, about that production. Well, and this documentary was interesting to watch because Supergiant, when they are making Bastion, are making their first game as an independent, just-founded studio where, like, a year ago, they they walked out of their jobs at a large studio and are really trying to build something for the first time. Whereas Double Fine is, you know, relatively comfortably established as an indie studio when they come to making Broken Age. Mm-hmm. They have lots of people with specialized roles, you know, they have structures and you know it's a very different vibe yeah but i mean in both cases i think you see a you know indie studios especially at the time they're them being much more open to transparency of the process Mm -hmm. and that also being a way to build some kind of relationship with potential players right that you know these people you you by watching these documentaries you build relationships for them you want them to succeed and are probably more likely to actually buy the buy the product to help them succeed because you you become attached to them honestly it worked (laughs) Like, I I still feel some level of rooting for Double Fine, and I I have for a while for Super Giant, but yeah, um, it's been we watched the the no clip documentary about uh, Super Giant making Hades, and then we watched this this earlier documentary about them making Bastion. And it's just like an easy team to root for. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so easy to be on their side. I think the bigger question then here is then for you, what is uh, an indie game. I mean, there's there's kind of a literal definition, but it's a word that I think gets used a lot and, and in some places, you know, incorrectly, but it, it has a lot of different connotations. So what does it mean for you specifically when you think indie game today? So I suspect that I don't know the actual technical definition and that there is one and that I just don't have it. I don't know if it's just anything that isn't AAA. I don't really know what makes something AAA besides I just associate it with being like pretty huge. Um, yeah, I mean, AAA is just... It's not an official term. It's just something that was kind of made up and has been used to refer to big budget okay. production. It's not It's not kind of an... I think it maybe it has become an official quote unquote industry term over time, but it is It is not that. Okay. It's, it doesn't have very clear cut boundaries. Okay. Because I mean, when I was thinking, when I was thinking this through, I was like, is Mojang still an indie or like were they at one point when they... I think it's Mojang. Mojang. Um, I don't know if anybody's bought them. I think they're still independent. Well, so this was my question. Is that's it, like Minecraft is, like- is Minecraft isn't like that has been bought. That property is now okay. Microsoft. Okay. 
Yeah, or or like if you think about Epic Games or something like that, were they an indie when they launched Fortnite? And like, are they at this point? So I don't know if it's just something like any studio that doesn't have the backing of a larger corporate owner. Like, is that sort of what indie is? What's well, basically, it's like in anything. It's like in the music industry, like an indie artist is somebody who doesn't have the backing of a major just like record label sure. or distributor, right? So in, in this case, it's, it's often tied to publishing. It's a studio that's not owned by a major publishing company. Okay. All right. Uh, that makes sense. And so what's interesting about something like Bastion is that, right, it's these, it's this really small team that goes and makes their game all independently. But in this case, they actually got the backing of Warner Brothers to publish their game. Mm-hmm. So this might be like technically their least indie game of all their games. <laughs> but then because it was successful, now they self-publish. Right. right but right. It's, it's basically teams that don't have access to a publisher. Insomniac Games, until quite recently when they were bought by Sony, was technically an independent publisher or an independent studio. Okay, despite being really quite large and publishing, you know, big budget games. Well, like Sony would publish their games. Oh, okay, I see. Okay, yeah, so they have that relationship. Um, or somebody would publish their games, right? Like they, they'd have to make deals with the publisher to get their games out. Sure. I uh, still feel like I don't 100% understand what a publisher does in the in the game sense, we don't really have to get into that right now, but there's a whole there's a whole structural thing here that is very like a little bit baffling about. But I mean, yeah, but I mean the the point is right, that indie technically refers to a mode of production, right? Right. But it has come to mean so much other stuff around that, right? Right. Right. I I associate indie with being a home for ideas that may not have broad enough appeal to take up space in the AAA market. I mean, that's oversimplifying a lot. There are a lot of AAA games that try a lot of stuff, but in general, I think it's I think of indie as a space for new ideas to emerge and be played with, new aesthetics, mechanics to be worked out without, you know, all the financial baggage of having to make enough money to be a, a AAA title. Um that's maybe like a little bit uh, optimistic and a little bit like leaning into the art side of indie, which is certainly not all there is. There's also, you know, the the part of indie that I think works well for like catering to niche interests or like niche genres or or niche demographics. I think a lot of that gets worked out in in the indie space, and that's definitely something I I uh, associate with it. I feel like there's whole genres that basically don't get a lot of get almost no AAA attention but exist like primarily serviced by indies. Sure. I mean, and a lot of that, I think we can locate back to this moment because of course, indie games have always existed in some capacity. Right. Early PC gaming was basically independent games only. Um, and it's really with the consolidation of the industry, especially through consoles where in order for anybody to access your game or for you to distribute your game, you need access to, you know, a cartridge. Right. And, and, and hardware in a different way that really kind of had to push indie developers to the side because there's just no distribution then. Right. It's a big gate you can be kept out of pretty easily, yeah. Uh, and then around this time, when due to you know the rise of Steam on consoles, I think primarily to the rise of um, Xbox Live Arcade, which was a digital distribution platform that was kind of native to, I think it was on the Xbox, but it really blew up and was kind of native to the Xbox 360 and actually gave a space for any developers to get their work on a console. Okay. Basically for the first time, Microsoft actually put a lot of resources into helping foster indie developers they for a bunch of years they had something called the summer of arcade where they'd pick you know five indie titles and put a lot of kind of marketing Hmm. backing into them would give people incentives to buy all five of them oh okay you kind of get discounts the more you bought sure um braid was part of that bastion was part of that 
Um, Geometry Wars was one of their first big hits. So would those have only come out in digital? So we're like absolving uh, studios of having to worry about the logistics of putting out physical copies of games or no? Yes, all of these are only digital, digital only releases. Okay. And so part of this too is kind of attuning players, especially console players to accepting the fact that you can you can access games differently that you don't actually need a cartridge or a cd to play your game right right so that that's part of it um also because you don't have to go through all of those those logistics right it allows people to make shorter games more compact experiences experiences that don't look like they should cost 60 bucks because they don't have to cost 60 bucks they can cost 15 dollars right so so it's really distribution and different models of distribution that allows for indie games to blow up as they did around this time cool but i mean the other thing that happens then is that you have all these people nostalgic for these genres a lot that kind of had to die off in the 16-bit era because they're just not sustainable anymore either you know the genre itself lent uh, lent to making games that you know by 2004 would be seen as too short okay or using graphical styles that you know might not appeal to a mainstream used to right. you know high fidelity call of duty style graphics in that drive towards like more realistic higher higher graphic fidelity like all yeah. that sort of stuff yeah yeah, right. yeah. So that's why at this time especially you see a ton of games from the indie scene blowing up that you know are resurrecting dead genres you know brawlers being one of them point and clicks i think point and clicks being another one you know using Art styles that haven't been seen since the 16-bit era using pixel art, you know, and and people are starting to be nostalgic for that anyway. Right. Um, And then also giving teams the space to really, you know, hone in on one or two ideas and develop them in in the space of a game without having to, you know, make a game that is everything for all people because it doesn't need to sell X million copies to make to turn a profit. You know, I have to be honest, it's a little bit surprising to me to hear that um, Xbox was sort of the driving force in in the sort of early days of this indie boom because during the tenure of my time with consoles, you know, like as an adult, overwhelmingly, I feel like Sony has been like the PlayStation has had only way more. So this is something that also seems to be a trend where who's ever who's ever kind of the underdog in the console race, who's ever <laughs> fighting th- from the bottom, courts indies because they understand how to leverage them to their advantage. Okay, so. I think part of what helped Xbox 360 become so successful was was this kind of offering their players games they haven't seen before. And then, and if you remember, you know the the release of the PS3 was was really rough. Okay. And it was part of Sony's strategy to kind of get out of the gutter a little bit um, was to start courting indie developers. And then, mm-hmm. so they kind of became you know they appealed to them and built these relationships, and then you know had these relationships uh, kind of built in when the, the PS4 comes out. Arguably, you could say that because of the huge success of the PS4, the fact that Sony's doing fine, they kind of let a lot of the indie developers and let kind of let those relationships go. I know there were, you know, changes like corporate changes. The people sure, who are sure. building those relationships have moved on, gone elsewhere. Uh, but now you see a lot of those developers have migrated towards the Switch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's really not like one major hardware publisher or developer associated with nurturing indie okay. games it, it it really does it really does move around and again to say that these places nurture i mean i think it's that, a little yeah yeah right. that's a little disingenuous and doesn't necessarily um perfectly uh perfectly encapsulate you know the relationship that i'm sure indie developers have to these to these companies sure and, you know so indie is very much you know this mode of production that has been turned into basically you know an aesthetic an ethos a a, a mindset a way of approaching games and i and i think that which is all well and good, but it's really important to not separate it from the mode of production. Right. Because that, at its core, it is, you know, 
under-resourced developers building games, hoping to make it big. A lot of them are failing because they don't have they don't have the backing. You know, taking risks. And the other thing is why I think it's really important to to maintain that connection in our minds is because I think we see it less now. But definitely when you started getting back into games, we saw the kind of that indie aesthetic being co-opted by major publishers. Right, right. So I, I know you played, for example, Children of Light. Yep. Right, which is uh, an Ubisoft game. Right, right. Not an indie game, but that is, you know, kind of takes a 2D art style, is inspired heavily by JRPGs, because ha- has all of the aesthetic trappings of an indie game. Right. But put out by a major publisher with people who just worked on their latest AAA title who decided to do something smaller. But really just like, okay, on the one hand, I'm sure, okay, yes, they did want to give this team some creative sure. freedom to go and do a smaller project that they were really passionate about. But on the other hand, I think it's really easy to also look at this as a, a major publisher seeing how popular some of these games are and just co-opting that aesthetic mm-hmm. and and putting something out because they know that there's a market for it. Right. Uh, and in that case, you know, indie development does not benefit at all. Right. This again is like is like music, right? When indie became a genre as opposed to like Exactly. A, and I think it's really important that it doesn't become reduced to a genre or a style because as soon as you could, as soon as it does, then it is co-opted by Right. by capitalism. Ah, and cut it from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is I I associate the the indie stuff really from this era and conti- and like even contemporary stuff as like really fine work within harsh constraints. Yeah. Like what can what is doing the most with like a very often limited budget, tool set, mm-hmm. team, you know. Um And and you could and like I think even today, you know, what is expected of an indie game is so much more yeah. than what was being put out at this time. And and again, these games are these games are perfectly fine. Yep. Players almost expect they expect an indie game now to be almost as feature rich as a triple A game and it, as polished and as non buggy and all that. Yeah. Stuff. And I think yeah. some of that has to do with, you know, the conflation of, of, of what indie is and, and that aesthetic and that aesthetic being co-opted by these, um, these publishers and, and these companies that do have the resources. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it has to do with the explosion and, you know, of some of these indie studios that were able to get really popular and were able to, you know, to actually now have, the kind of financial stability to put out what they want. And and now these indie developers can actually develop something that looks much more like a AAA game. Right. Um, but I think it that makes it harder on people kind of starting out. And so I don't know, we might be we might be getting close to another time where we have to kind of reassess and uh, and adjust our expectations of what what different kinds of developers can do. But with that, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Michelle's history with Supergiant Games in particular, and then we can finally dig into their first game, Bastion.
And we're back. And before we talk about Bastion specifically, I want to talk to you a little bit about your history with Supergiant Games, becoming aware of them, because, you know, I don't think this is this is something that can be said of of many people, but I think this speaks to your relationship with indie games is that you get a brand new PS4. Yep. And the first thing you want to do, you want to buy Transistor. It is the first thing that I played and purchased on my PS4. I played that and then I played Dragon Age Inquisition and then it was a minute before I played anything else. <laughs> yeah, you get it. You don't really care right about the big AAA games that are going to show off the power of the PS4. No, you want to play couldn't care less. The, the game that you're most attracted to yeah. is Transistor. Beautiful singing lady with a talking sword and good art and music. That's the one that I want. So is that is that what Supergiant is for you primarily? <laughs> I mean, kind of, like a little bit. I mean, it's also, it's it's one of the only lineage of games that I play that's isometric. That hasn't been like a huge part of my, mm-hmm. of my gaming life. But when Transistor is just, it glows like a jewel when you see the art from Transistor. And when you hear like the beautiful voice behind it. Like it just, there's something so compelling about that. So I, I played that and I, I love the art and music. The gameplay was just okay. Um, and I skipped Pyre when it came out, which was their next game because it was about sports. Although I think pretty much everyone who played it really liked it. I think that's the one that's most divisive of all their games. Okay, okay. I haven't played it either. And I, and again, because of sports, and it's it's not a real it's sport. So it's a fantasy sport. <laughs> There's so many other games we play that are just sports dressed with, up, dressed different. up as fantasy, right? So yeah, I don't know what it was. Maybe one day I'll go back. We're both very stupid. But anyway, so um, and then Hades came out and I didn't pick it up right away. Um, It was sort of like, oh, yeah, maybe. But then everyone was saying, Hades, 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 it's so good. Uh, And they were right. Hades is incredible. It's so addictive. It is such fun gameplay as well. It's it's a roguelike that like really makes such good use of the like so much is great about Hades. I just I really love that game. Yeah, I mean, I liked older Supergiant games. Hades is the first one of theirs where I think that the bones of the game, like the gameplay, matches the quality of the aesthetic. Yes. Yes, I agree with that completely. And really, your experience of seeing Transistor for the first time, right? Seeing that art style, listening to it, hearing it, and saying, it, you know, I need to get my hands on that game is yeah. how I and I think a lot of other people felt the second we saw Bastion. Hmm. Right? That I don't think you can quite overstate how important the art is for the success of that game. Can we just say it? Gen Z is a legend. Yes. Their art director is incredible. It's been the same person for all of these games who is their art director. I know it sounds like I'm saying Generation Z, but it's J-E-N-Z-E-E. Just like, wow. In terms of contribution to the games that she has worked on, like top tier, S tier art director. (laughs) Yeah. and, And again, We'll get into it. And and I think, you know, the bones of Bastion are good, but it's the quality of that art that looks like nothing I had ever seen at that point mm-hmm. um, in my life when I saw Bastion, combined with just the, the general setting, the music, again, like the general aesthetic is what put that game over the top. If it was just, you know, it could be the exact same game from a gameplay pr- perspective, but if it had a different veneer, if it was some kind of grim, dark, yeah, almost Diablo-esque kind of veneer i would not have played the game right uh, straight up i would right. not have played it right um, and uh, right uh, arguably then it would that would be a completely different game but the thing that drew me to bastion was was the art the aesthetic for sure 
Yep, that makes sense. And you know, there is there is a real lineage that I see between Bastion specifically and Hades. I mean, oh yeah, I would argue there's sort of a bit of a house style for super mm-hmm. giant games. You know, Gen Z certainly has a color palette. She likes her sort of radiant, warm, and cool colors. Um, there's there's certainly a consistency in the music. There's sort of these really distinctive chord progressions that we hear. Uh, they're a little different in Transistor because that one is a, is made to be jazzier. Um, but certainly between Bastion, which has like a little bit of a country western twang, and Hades, which has these like um, eastern and and hard rock like metalish influences. Um, there's just there's something so like oh right this is. I can feel that the same guy <laughs> did this. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like there's there's something recognizable about that. There's an identity to the aesthetic. Oh, yeah. You can definitely like, – Hades is very much, I think, the culmination of their work up to this point. And again, I'm sure there's some stuff they learned from Pyre that went into Hades right. as well. There's clearly some stuff from Transistor that went into Hades. Yeah. But we're here not to talk about Hades, though I'm sure we'll hit it along the way because it's, these games are – it's hard to think about Bastion without thinking about Hades and vice versa, Yeah, especially now that you've played Bastion. So let's get into Bastion. Do you want to just set up what this game is? I think we've already alluded to it, but... Yeah, sure. So uh, Bastion is an isometric action RPG. You play as this character called The Kid who wakes up in a world that has been ruined by something called The Calamity. And he comes to work with a small number of other survivors who are trying to restore the Bastion, which is the, your sort of hub world, uh, which is this big machine that uh, can set back time to before the calamity that ruined everything. So all the like play areas in this game are suspended in the sky, and that uh, mechanism is supposed to be controlled by the Bastion. So paths sort of rise up around you and compose themselves under your feet. Yeah. And this is another big thing that made this game incredibly distinctive, right? Like the map comes into existence as you walk. It's cool. It's really, it's really cool. And and again, you know, this is something that is a hallmark of games of this era that they look like nothing anybody else was doing or nothing you had ever seen before, right? Like with Bastion, you see, okay, a glimpse of, of you know, you feel nostalgic maybe for isometric action RPGs. But the ground just appears beneath the, yeah. the character as he walks, right? Like that, there's a hook right there. Yeah. And I mean, uh, so I've said that it's kind of post-apocalyptic, but it's very like lush, like there's greenery, there's there's still like life happening. Like it's not it's not a grim dark. And this in the documentary, they they made this point over and over, right? It's post-apocalyptic, but they're trying to show that the post-apocalypse can be beautiful. Again, I think really strategic. This game emerged, I think, in the mire of Greys and Browns. Okay. <laughs> like in, in like peak PS3 okay. Greys and Browns and muddiness. Well, this, the contrast then, like I can't imagine. So yeah, I mean, you're you're going through these spaces, fighting some enemies. You have basically a shield, a melee attack, a ranged attack, and a dodge roll. Uh, and so the core loop is you're... Uh, the Bastion is your hub world. You're going out into the the peripheral world to find these cores that are like power for the Bastion. And when you bring it back, you can put the core in and it lets you like build a building that you can use for something right. on these, the Bastion. These are very discrete level, discrete yeah. levels. You're in, you're in your hub world. You get sent to kind of like a, a map. They are levels. You select which level you want to go to to find the core. You get plopped in. You finish it, you know, seven to ten minutes incredibly pleasant short little loop you get your core back to the bastion yeah and so along the way you also you know meet a very small cast of other survivors who come back with you to the bastion and part of it is about uh the sort of story that you all are are on together um 
So... May as well talk about probably the defining feature of this game, who is tied to one of these characters. My bastion. That's not how he sounds. The narrator. Yeah. the, the Rooks. Yeah. They're, so go ahead. Explain, explain <laughs> what this is. This is, again, one of the major hooks of this game, something that made it uh, so different from anything else. Also, I've been making little jokes about it, but like I, I think this is great. Uh, it doesn't work perfectly, but I really like this element of the game. So... Right from the start, when you wake up as the kid, you have this narrator's voice, and the and the narration is from a character. It's not just disembodied. We don't know that yet, right? Um, and so the the person who's speaking is this character that you meet when you get to the Bastion for the first time. He's been hanging out there. His name is Rux. He he very much looks like an aged up version of the kid. Never mind. Uh, he's got this thick Southern accent, it's which old, I've been making an old fun of. Gunslinger. He's an old gunslinger. But he he narrates like everything that you do. And the, the so this does not sound impressive when I'm describing it. But the thing that the biggest thing that I took away from the from the first level or two, you getting to the bastion is how responsive the narration is to what you do. Like the first time when I got my first weapon, which is like this big hammer thing, um, I was playing around with it. So I'm going around smashing up the scenery, breaking everything that's destructible in sight, which, you know, wisely this game gave me a bunch of rocks to break. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Um, the narrator notices that I'm doing that and narrates, he's just blowing off steam on everything in sight. Like it, like the game notices that I'm like staying and messing around like that. Like, right, like all gamers ever want is for uh, the game to respond to what they're doing. Yeah. And usually that happens, you know, mechanically stuff happening behind the scenes. This game is just like, no, outright, we're just going to tell you what you're doing because that's the way that this game does its storytelling. Yeah. And it feels it feels surprising the first time it happens. Uh, might wear off its welcome by the end. <laughs> not, not, not perfect. But I mean, one of the most impactful instances of this where I was like, oh, they've got something here um, was. So one of the things when you're running around is you come across these uh people who have just basically been turned to ash like on the spot at during the calamity and so they still are like in their old form and shape they're like a standing up ash figure um and when you approach them you know rux the narrator will tell you a little bit about who they are and be like oh that's mrs crawford she you know whatever whatever um but i i got in the practice immediately of knocking them down and that when you do that i think especially more than once the narrator says something like he didn't much care for seeing them like that. Like there's like a, you know, there's not, the kid doesn't talk. We have like very much a kind of silent protagonist model here. Um, there's not a lot of like subtle character traits given to all the characters here. But I don't know, that made me feel like it was co-creating with me a, a characterization of who the kid is based on what I was doing in game. Is he a reliable narrator? <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about that. It is one of the things, you know, as you're as you're going through, I think because he is narrating everything and you know you and you realize later he's not this omniscient presence, he's this character in the game who's, you know, ostensibly telling the retelling the story. Yeah. And you know, he does ascribe motivation and intention and thoughts to your actions that maybe you're not feeling, maybe your character's not feeling, but you know, he 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 does that. I think it's it's an interesting play kind of telling directing you as the player, you know, telling you how you should be feeling in these moments. Yeah, and some of those work better than others. Mm -hmm. I think that was that that example was sort of like the most it ever worked 
for me where I was like, I was comfortable taking on that interpretation mm-hmm. of what my character is doing. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I think I think this at its best is a really nice embedded organic way to uh, bring this sort of color into the world. I, I think the thing that we need to talk about up front is that this is the game's primary means of communicating anything about the story. Right? Yeah. This is he's the narrator and that is the game's mode of narration. Info dumps, storytelling, lore. Instructions for what to do. It's all just this voiceover. (laughs) Yeah, there are some very, very minor cutscenes, which are barely cutscenes. They're just kind of like a piece of art. Yeah. And and usually Rux is narrating, is is talking over it. But by and large, you know, the exposition is all done kind of in real time as you're moving through the world and hearing Rux tell you stuff. And here is part of the problem that I have with the narration. Mm. I cannot be both focused on a pretty active combat scenario and also listening to Rux. <laughs> like it just, there was so many times when I was like, I can hear that you're talking. I'm focused on managing this like big crowd of guys. It's not that this game is like so difficult. I didn't find this difficult combat wise, but you know, it gets hairy at times. And I just like, there's so many instances where I was like, I Rux, can you give me 10 seconds and then talk to me when I'm like transitioning between, you know, when I'm just walking around um, and particularly one of the like kind of oddest implementations of this structure is there's there's this thing in the game uh, called the who knows where, which you open up some stuff on the bastion and then you can go to this like who knows where like magical place. It's just one basically square grid with some decoration where basically what you'll get is, you know, something like 20 waves of enemies and over it, Rux will tell you some in-depth lore about one particular character. So this is, you know, where you're going to get the kid's backstory and the backstory of Zulf and Zia, who were two of the the other characters that you get on the Bastion. But this whole thing is over you fighting what was, for me, the hardest battles in the entire game. So that, like, I think for all of them, I had to go Google the script for that lore dump <laughs> afterwards and then just read it. Which also, when you read it, it's like a short paragraph. Like, it's disappointingly minimal when you see it written <laughs> down. So I think there is a little bit of a logistical problem or, or challenge here. Uh, or maybe I'm just too bad at multitasking. But this was something that frustrated me at multiple points. It was like, I want to hear what you're saying. I love lore. Share it with me. On on the positive side, I think one of the things that this is that you really see through how they're giving out the story is that they're trying to tell a story. They're trying to tell a narrative. You already mentioned kind of these two other pretty significant characters, Zulf and Zia, who pop up, but they do it more or less without the use of cutscenes, largely due to resource constraints. Sure, right? They don't. They can't make elaborate cutscenes. They basically have to do all their storytelling through the assets that they've made to build the levels. And so I think they do some really interesting things with that and, and you know, use and really make the most of what they have. In this case, you know, just great voice actor and the opportunity to put voice over, you know, and just kind of trigger voice, which is a relatively easily accessible resource. Yeah. But there are other moments, too, in the game. For example, when you find some of these characters that Absolutely. I think, you know, 
function as a cutscene would, but do it in real time as you're moving through the world because you're you have to use the assets that you have. Yeah, Zia's introduction is maybe the most special of these. I think the and introduction the, of the character. And this is one of the moments that when this game came out, everybody was talking. I about. bet. Yeah, that makes sense. So if, if you don't already know, the the deal with when you meet Zia is you you're very used to having rocks in your ear and the music and everything in this world, and then you get to this one level and everything goes very silent, and you just hear this woman's voice singing this song that you haven't heard before. Um, and that's Zia. And so that's all the sound is in this level is you making your way towards the source of this voice. And remember, this is in a world where we don't know how many humans have survived, like certainly a small number. So like to hear this, this like incredibly beautiful voice singing is just so compelling. Uh, and you just you just really feel drawn to it. And then you find her and she's sitting with like a little harp thing and you're able to meet her and bring her back to the bastion. It's just so it, it, it's done with a, a really light hand and um, it's, it's really memorable and really special. I mean, oh. it's so much more impactful than if it happened in a cutscene. Oh yeah. And I mean, this is something that after this, AAA games were stealing this idea all the time. <laughs> Quiet moment in real time we could walk around where our character sings a song was just like ripped off by so many games. <laughs> there's 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 so many good examples of this. When you find Zulf also, this was actually very memorable for me. You don't know in advance that you're going to find him, but when you walk up to him and see him on screen, he's just staring at the edge of a platform, staring up in awe, like just up and out, like completely... Almost like um, like in a moment of trauma or something like that. Like just like blank doesn't respond to you when you get there, um, and he has I guess just exited where he was and fa- and like realized that the calamity happened. Like you, it's like you find him in the moment where he's like realizing what has happened. Um, I mean, now since you've brought them up, we may as well get into the story a little bit. Sure. Maybe you can flesh out the story because you've mentioned these two significant characters, Zulf and Zia. And so I don't know if. When you were getting into Bastion, if you're expecting this to be, you know, a story about colonialism and, you know, like ethnic conflict. <laughs> That's the way with colonialism. <laughs> it's everywhere and you're never expecting. Uh, nope. I, I didn't really have a guess as to what the story of this game was about. I didn't even really know that it was like post-apocalyptic in theory. Um, it could, you know, whatever. Um so, but it sure is. It sure is that. So Zolf and Zia are two members of the Ura people who <laughs> live underground in tunnels mostly uh, and have a there's some stuff to say about like maybe racial dynamics in in this game but there was a big war between the Ura people and the Ceylondians who are your people who like built the bastion um, and yeah the Ura were mostly wiped out but these two particular Ura were living in like the city at the time with with the Ceylondians. Um so and like Rux isn't that sympathetic. Like when he's telling you the lore of the places, he talks no. about like you know, like we tried to make a deal with the Aura. Yeah. You know, to to like take this land of theirs and it was fine at first, but then they threw yeah. a fit. I think so it has a little bit of reference early on to the Ura and there having been a war, which you're like, okay, fair enough. Um, and then you get to a level called Point Lemaine, which is in the outer wilderness. And here's what I remember about that. It's the one with the Grand Rail. So it has like mm-hmm. a railway up sequence in it, which is also quite cool. But this was the first moment when I was like, oh, yeah, it's that kind of colony. Um, because 
the weapon that you find there at the start is a military rifle. And I was like, hmm, why would this be laying around here? So I think we, I think to me, I was like, oh, this was maintained at gunpoint. And they're talking from the start about how the Grand Rail was how they brought in all the riches of the wild into the city of Ceylandia to use and build. And at one point, as you're going through, Ruck says, and I wrote this down, I guess we didn't really ask for permission about building the rail, which I guess went right over the Aura tunnels where they mm. lived. He's like, must have shook them up real bad. It's like, yeah, Rux, I bet it probably did. I bet it did shake them up pretty bad. And the, But that's sort of all you get from him. So I'm like, oh, this was bad. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it is one of these moments because really, right, again, Rux is your only point of access to this world. And... uh yeah, and you really see it through kind of Rux's perspective, and you're not really given alternate perspectives. Yeah, yeah, except, you know, un- knowing whatever it is you as the player know about how mm-hmm. colonies work. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, you know, part of what happens as as the, the plot goes on is, turns out Zia's dad was one of the uh, designers of this very uh, complicated weapon thing, um, that then got used by Ceylondians. They wanted to um, collapse the tunnels that the Ura were in. Uh, a little light genocide, I would say, just a bit. And uh, then one of the uh, one of the Ura who was working on it found out, tampered with it, and so when they the Ceylondians tried to set off that mechanism, that's what created the calamity. That's what happened there. So Zolf finds out about this because he can read and he reads Zolf's uh he reads Zia's father's journal and then he gets mad, he smashes up the bastion. That's sort of your midway point is Zolf, you know, unexpectedly to you, smashes up the the monument that holds all the cores and and disappears. And so the back half of the game is you uh, looking for these smaller pieces of core called shards to try to repower up the bastion. Rux is starting to tell you more about what's actually going on here. Uh, Zia's trying to figure out her place in all of this, and uh, you're going to end up culminating in sort of your showdown with uh, with Zulf a little bit. And so coming into the ending, um, this game is quite an ending. Um, one of the things is you end up doing basically this siege on where the remaining Ura are hiding because they have taken the last shard that you need. You go in there, you see sort of inexplicably that um, they have turned on Zulf and you come across a bunch of them sort of beating him. They leave him for dead and you have the choice for whether to pick up Zulf and bring him back to the Bastion with you or not. So... I did pick up and Zolf. Again, and again, to put you back in the time, right? This type of choice also was something that was relatively rare, hmm. um, especially outside of narrative heavy narrative driven games, right? Because we're getting we're back at a time when you know binary choices are still blowing people away. If you think about <laughs> you know, if you think about Bioshock, well, and and I I do like that. You know, this will sound weird to say that I like it, but doesn't make that much of a difference it, to the big picture of the game, whether you choose to save Zulf or not. It's sort of a decision that you make based on just how you want this character to act in this space. It's part mm-hmm. of the story that you are telling yourself through this game. Um, and I actually like that. It's not like, oh, this opens up a whole other path mm-hmm. for you. Um, but saving Zulf does result in what I think is actually one of the best like non-cutscene cutscene substitutes <laughs> in game that I've seen in a hot minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, 
you're very close to your sort of exit platform when you pick up Zulf and you have to walk through what is just like, you know, the be prepared scene in The Lion King where it's just like floor to sky hyenas mm-hmm. all around. It's like that with with Ura and they've all like got their bows and stuff locked. Um, and when it starts, you're just you're going through this hailstorm of of bullets and or arrows or whatever it is that they're they're throwing at you. Um and you sort of survive through that and you're moving really slowly and you can't fight back because you have you have Zulf over your shoulder. And then gradually they stop. Like they just stop firing on you and you continue. You have to walk through them and they're all just sort of eerily holding back and watching you. And one random one like up on a platform actually fires at you and a bigger one that I think you have to interpret as like a command mm-hmm. or something like that like cuts him down um, just in case you had any questions about whether this was on purpose. Um, and they let you go to your, your exit place. Uh, and I think, I think that's just really, they, they see what you're doing and you sort of understand what's happening in that, in that scene uh, without it having to be this big dramatic swell of music kind of produced moment. So yeah, I, they, they just do a really good job at, at some of those beats. Yeah. And then the game of course presents you with another choice another binary choice but a choice nonetheless at the end i semi-jokingly wrote down more meaningful than mass effect (laughs) (laughs) yeah so basically what rux tells you is that the bastion can reverse time to before the calamity and undo all of that that happens all those all those people dying all that stuff um and you also have found out that there's an alternative which is that the bastion can basically self-destruct kind of and and release you like you can basically exit the the bastion just walk out and make your life so these are the two choices that you have and they're represented by sort of choosing between rux who just is like yeah we'll go back and do the calamity and zia who says um i i didn't like my life from before the calamity and i would want no other life than this um, and you're sort of left to make your choice based on that. I mean, in the in the interim, you've learned that Rux was the designer of the Bastion. He created this. Um, and, you know, you maybe have come to feel more skeptical of his perspective. So I this ending was fine. Um, I don't like either of their perspectives. And I don't like that uh, the, the game thinks I'm going to agree with either one. Like, neither of them are like, what is the right thing to do by all the people who are currently alive and all the people who died in the calamity? Like, it's just very like, I would like to keep living. <laughs> really? I would like to undo the calamity. What do you think, the kid? Um, which is a little bit of a narrow-sighted way of looking at a, a world-changing event, uh, including part of the, part of the, the thing that, it, that Ruck says is that everyone who's alive now will cease to exist in that format. Um, so like there's Ura who are alive, who don't get a say in in what you're going to do. I don't know. It's like, it's, um, it's sort of like the, they're, they are setting this question up as if it's like a life is strange Bay versus Bay situation where it's like, do you choose your friends or do you choose the entire world? Um, but that doesn't make sense to me as a reading of this game. And, and I think you didn't go back and see what the other ending so I watched the other ending on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, I didn't like replay the whole thing again. But yeah, I went and watched it. And I mean, basically, it's cyclical, right? So if you if you decide to undo the calamity, basically, you can't and you have to repeat. Yeah. Um, yep. Right, that you're basically are doing your new game plus to get the the other ending. So I think the game has has an idea of which is the, the correct quote unquote ending. 
Yep. Um, but I, on my first go through, chose to just move forward. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't undo the calamity the first time around. Uh, and and not because I am indifferent to the calamity that happened. I think Zia's reason is bad. Um, but because I don't trust Rux. I don't believe anything he says about how this is going to work. I think he's been selling you a false bill of goods for what this Bastion does this entire time. Um He's just, Rux is like a tech solutionist. Mm-hmm. Like, I have to look at this through 2021 lens, right? This is the guy who thinks everything can be solved with an algorithm or like, like looks around at this like horrible thing that happened and looks back at his like peak empire society and is like, man, if only we could get back there. Um, learn nothing. Mm-hmm. Not too curious about any alternatives to his one plan, which is use the machine I made. And like, I think fundamentally, I just don't trust anyone who tells you that things can go backwards. Mm. That's just something I'm so skeptical of. So I guess before we close out talking about the narrative, do you think, so, you know, it's this game that's, uh, you know, it's it's ultimately a brawler RPG, but it's, the veneer is dealing with some pretty heavy themes, mm-hmm. pretty heavy ideas. Do you think that the game earns its narrative and pays off this narrative? No, I I don't really. Um, and do you think the game has a point of view on any of these issues? I mean, maybe it it based on the fact that it sort of loops you around if you choose to use the Bastion to go back in time. I, I guess sort of it's. I guess that suggests to me that maybe the devs feel that the the real ending or like the correct thing. I mean, to you can, choose you is get to go, you have access to New Game Plus regardless. No, no, I understand that, but there's you know that that gives me a reading, but like I don't, I. It's almost like I think I I we are seeing like a gravity to some of these themes that like is not really in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, like they don't they don't present the Ura as like victims of a would be genocide. That's not the tone that we have here. We're you know we're very much looking at Zia and Zulf as like individuals mm-hmm. and it, like I, it's. I, I don't know. I that I'll be honest. The narrative is not the strongest part of, of this game for me, and it's not the thing I'm going to take away with me into the future. Yeah, and I do think it, at some points it is in conflict with what the moment to moment of the yeah. game actually is. Right, the the kind of the bare bones of the game. I mean, also you're mostly in the early game killing like basically animals or beasts, and at at one point you transition to killing mostly Ura, and the game does not make any observation of that. Feels very different to me, but the game doesn't note that like oh the kid is is now killing people like uh oh (laughs) yeah i definitely get the sense that at moments the game is more invested in itself as an action rpg than it is as a narrative yeah but yet wants to have this this kind of beautiful narrative veneer on top of it which is the part that i found interesting which is i think is why we actually talked about that first which is usually not how we talk about yeah 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 um so now let's uh let's go back in time i guess and talk about what you do in this game I dig my hole, you build a wall I dig my hole, you build a wall One day that wall is gonna fall Gonna build that city on a hill Someday those tears are gonna spill 
Don't build that wall up to the sky. And we're back to actually talk about the bones of this game, because as I think you mentioned before, right, the bones of this game are really what you see moving forward in something like Hades. You you see the the groundwork being laid here for that game that um, I think is, you know Hades I think is just an excellent game, and and you really see that being laid here. And you know one thing that I kept thinking about, especially after having played Hades, is like okay, Bastion is a linear game. It's a linear narrative game. It's not a roguelike. It kind of wants to be a roguelike, <laughs> and maybe it should have been a roguelike, and maybe that's what they decided to go with Hades. Because I mean, you described the core loop already. Yeah. So right, basically, you go in and you're getting cores. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is Zulf disrupts it. And then you do the exact, like, it just repeats again, where then you're going back into different levels and getting shards. You literally rebuild the same buildings that you built. Right. So, I mean, you're going through different levels every time, but it very much is repetitive. It's it just the yeah. same loop over and over. And even when there is a narrative twist, the twist is just to make you do the loop you've already been doing again. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they just call them shards instead of cores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, exactly. and I mean, it really, it's to do the same thing. It undoes all the buildings you just built. It's like, okay, build them again. Yeah, and you're like, I guess. You do get some progression and, you know, you continue building out your weapons loadout. You get new weapons in a, a large number of levels. And that's, I think, one of the things that feels like it does evolve over the course of the game. Yeah, right. It does. It, it's an action game, but it does have these RPG elements. There are a lot of different weapons. You start with kind of your um, iconic hammer, yeah. which is on all the all the artwork, which is, again, one of these moments where... I know the first time I played it, I just mostly stuck with the hammer because I'm like, that's his weapon. That's what's on the poster. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But, but you can you can kind of experiment and, and you build up weapons and you can take two weapons with you into each level plus kind of one special move. Yeah, that are tied to your weapon. So it's something special to do with one of the things you have upgraded. Yeah, you have a mix of melee weapons like a hammer. You have a, a, a machete. You have a like this long pike pokey thing yeah which is which is kind of awesome and then you have a lot of projectiles you can have a bow you can have a shotgun you can have dual pistols yeah um and you and you get these as you go so did you have did what did you think about how these kind of customization options were implemented did you um did you experiment or did you have one loadout that you that you sat with most of the game one loadout baby yeah oh yeah i think way more than hades like hades i have weapons i like more and less but i don't have like one that i'm like oh obviously this is the best weapon for me this one, as soon as I got the scrap musket, I was like, <laughs> goodbye, everything else. Like, because um, for a while I was playing with, so basically my 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 core was scrap musket plus either the worn machete or the uh, galleon um, mortar. Would you get quite late in the game? Yeah, yeah. So for a long time I was so worn machete is super short range but brutally fast. Like, how fast can you mash? It can slash that fast. And that's what I liked about it is you can get in super close and just like really go hog wild on, on mashing your attack. Um, and then the scrap musket is just like a perfect weapon for this game for me. You got Ooh. intense up close melee damage. You got knockback effect. You got range options. You got a bit of AOE like crowd control because it fires a bunch of shots that kind of radiate mm, outwards. Mm-hmm. So you can hit a bunch of guys at once often. What more could a girl want than the scrap musket? <laughs> like, I, I basically ended up moving away from the war machete because I came to realize after a couple levels that I was using the scrap musket as my main melee weapon anyway. So, like, there's no point <laughs> in even carrying this. Like, give me a be- a bigger ranged gun, which is how we get the galleon mortar, mm. which is, like, pretty slow to aim, but is has, like, good range and a big AOE, like, intense damage burst. So it's, like... Okay, if I really have to deal with something serious, this is it. 
Um, and yeah, that was that was my loadout. No questions. So one thing that I found interesting about this game, but also sometimes kind of frustrating, and I'd like to get your take on this, is that you encounter new weapons in the levels themselves. Mm-hmm. And whenever you find a new weapon, it forces you to use it right away. Yeah. So you can go in with your preferred loadout. You know, you would have went in with your musket and your machete, and then you would have found your um, galleon mortar. And it would force you to use it would swap out one of your weapons and force you to use it for a bit, sometimes for the whole level. Yeah. Some levels have um, armories where you can swap out. Yeah. But often, you know, you find it in a level and you have to use it for the whole level. What did you think about that? Did that did that encourage experimentation or did it just frustrate you? Like, I understand the reason for putting that in the game. Yeah. Right. Because it, it does force you to at least play for a few minutes with every weapon. Try it. Sometimes I don't want to try it. Sometimes I want to use my loadout. <laughs> I felt that the only one I felt that frustrated by was the rifle because I was just like, this takes too long to mm. aim. I don't want to do this. Um, but in general, I think it was okay. Like all, they also were designed to work well with the levels they were in. Like there was, mm-hmm. I never re-equipped the the pike thing after the level that I had to use the pike in. But the pike was a useful level for the a useful tool for the pike level. You know. Um, so I think it does a pretty reasonable job of matching it, what you're getting. It is kind of weird, though, to me, because you're getting new weapons so late in the game yeah. that you really never have the opportunity to pick a loadout and then bring it with you through the whole game. I guess that's, you know, you'd have to do that on New Game Plus. Right. But in your first playthrough, you're constantly swapping. So you never really, it doesn't really allow you to get comfortable with any of the weapons. I mean, I think the other thing that I, I sort of think about with this is like, would the gameplay of the levels be just a little repetitive if you weren't being forced to mix up what your loadout yeah, but that's was? That's on me at that point. And like there's a lot about this game that I think is that I don't love about this game and and that I remembered liking more. Maybe it's after playing Hades I don't, but a, a lot of that comes back to it would be on me to swap out my my weapons in that case. I guess. Yeah. I just don't know if that's that's definitely like not my that's not in my like DNA to do that. I would just be like, this is boring and too easy. Not like, oh, let me equip something I like fighting with less. You know what I mean? You can also increase your challenge level. There's a thing in it where you can equip these like uh, idol things that are tributes mm-hmm. to gods that raise the challenge level in various ways. So you do have actually a fair bit of difficulty control. Yeah, I never, I mean, I guess you you get faster levels if you do that. Again, I never felt incentivized to actually yeah. do that. Yeah. It's it's one of these games where you have a lot of customization choice options and you can, yeah, like Michelle said, you can access these shrines to tweak the difficulty level. Which you can do, you know, Hades has that as well. Yep. But in Hades, you're kind of incentivized to do it. It feels motivated, yeah. In, and in this game, it's really just, um, if you're finding it too easy, you can adjust the difficulty. But because I was kind of reading this game as a narrative-driven game, I don't play these games yeah. for their difficulty. Like, I don't know, just my relationship to this game, it felt like what the game was presenting me was different from what it wanted to be. Yeah. And what it wanted to be was Hades. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't know it yet. <laughs> True. Yeah, very, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I I was not inclined at all to increase the difficulty just for funsies. It's like, no, I'm like moving through. I love how fast this game moves. Mm -hmm. I don't mean like the combat is pretty nimble, but that's not what I mean. I mean, like your loop of like getting to a level, doing the level, getting back to the bastion, getting your upgrade building, going back out there buying a thing at the shop, doing all that. Like it's it's like it's really snappy, like make it short again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is, yeah. Everything is kind of bite-sized. Nothing overstays its welcome. No. Each level, I mean, the levels can get, are pretty similar. They can feel samey, but they, they at least have like one kind of twist and an idea in yeah. each one. Any favorites that you had of the levels? Uh, I love the railway one. There's one that I really like. Oh, yeah, liked. which has almost like a, there's like an auto-scroll component to, to that one at a, yeah. a certain part. 
Yeah, because once you once you take the the shard or the core, the, that's sort of what's holding the whole thing together. It starts to fall apart. So then you have the sequence where the railway's falling apart and you're running down it. I really liked uh, Mount Zand um, because it has this long grass section that I thought was so cool where like the grass is so tall, you can't really clearly see where you are. And there's this one uh, enemy in the game called Lunkheads. It's basically like a hopping frog thing. Those things are annoying. <laughs> They're like fun to fight when there's only one of them, but they can in a crowd. They're bastards. I I found crowds in this game quite difficult to manage because I found my character kind of got lost in the crowd. Yeah. And and there's some enemies that can actually hold you in place. Yes. And if you're crowded when those are present, you're not always clear when you're being held in place. Yeah. My the consistently the like uh, super attack Mm. thing that Mm -hmm. I carried was a crowd control thing for the for the musket. It was it's just like rain down bullets. Oh yeah, that makes sense. It was purely for like let me panic and and just clear out some of these low level low level guys. But yeah, so you're in these tall grasses and it's so cool. It's nowhere else in the game and you could just see the lunkheads only like at the top of their jump poking out of it. Mm, So you have to fight them that way. I don't know. It's just little, it's just aesthetic, but Mm. like it's late in the game. Like you showed me something new. Like cool. Um so yeah, I mean I I definitely have ones that were more memorable than others. Yeah, you got one with this enemy that's called an ankle gator. Queen Anne. Which, how did you even describe her? Her royal is? majesty. She is the most sin ugly, massive lizard that like stays underground like a shark with just like its fin poking mm-hmm. up and then jabs up like a knife at you and has just this comically like big fish eye. And she's she hideous. Of, and in this level, she kind of pursues you through the level. Yeah. And only at the end can you actually you know, face off against her. I thought that was that was really my uh, favorite comp, my favorite fight of the game, for sure. The Queen Anne fight at the at mm-hmm. the end of that when you actually finally get to face off when against you gotta her. You got to use the pike and not your optimal loadout. Yep. There's an instance you don't want to get too close to Queen Anne. <laughs> yeah. And so, so this is so this is something that Playing this game, and again, I, I enjoyed this game. My memories of it were, uh, from the kind of the moment to moment, were better than I think I experienced it this time. I think I remembered it being faster and 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 kind of snappier. Um, it felt slower to me, and again, maybe this is just because I played Hades, Hades recently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the thing I learned about this game, and I would never have thought this before, is like like I said, I wish it was a roguelike, and I I usually don't like roguelikes. Yeah, that's not your genre, but. I, I learned a lot about myself playing this game. I learned that, you know, I need incentive to experiment. Yep. I'm not going to do it on my own. I really get settled in my ways too easily. <laughs> um, and I need the game to prod my experimentation. But I also don't want them to force a loadout on me. <laughs> Hard to please. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, this game, I think, is really just built for multiple playthroughs. But I didn't really want to play through it again. Yeah, I really have no interest. And I do feel like this game would be better on a second playthrough when you can, you know, optimize your loadouts when you have all five. So another thing this game does is you have choice of weapon, but then you can also upgrade your weapons five times. Mm -hmm. And each upgrade, you have to kind of choose one of two options. Um, So, you know, for example, you can increase the blast radius or reload speed, but you can't have both of those at once. And they each cost money. So probably on your first time, you can't actually have all the options available to you. I had a fully upgraded musket. Because yeah, because you chose, you know, this is your one thing you're gonna prioritize. <laughs> yeah. But you can't upgrade all the weapons fully No. On your first go. Which again, I really like that idea, kind of forcing you to think about how you play. Um really forcing I, I I do like these games that really make you reflect on 
you know, the mechanics, like the underlying systems of these yeah. combat games and make you actually think about, okay, have I been struggling with the reload time of this weapon? Yeah. Or have I been finding myself in situations where I w- wish there was a greater blast radius? Yeah. Or I wish I was doing more damage, you know, and, and actually getting you to think about, you know, how are the numbers going to change? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of interesting. But again, I think that's something that would have been more compelling on a on a second or third or fourth or 105th playthrough. Yeah, I, I'll be honest, I don't, from my perspective, I don't think the gameplay is just fun enough moment to moment to entice me into another playthrough, even though there would be stuff to play around with mm-hmm. and all that, especially when Hades is right there on my Switch. I know. And this is like, it's such so a- unfair. It's so unfair in looking at this game through the lens of what the studio is capable of after a bunch of other successful games that they learned from. Mm-hmm. I but just I mean, can't help it. That's the thing. I had this problem in Transistor as well, where I know Transistor, I know the people who really love that game. The pleasures I get is just experimenting with different loadouts. It never enticed me to experiment. It was not, it was never difficult. Like I never felt that game, just like this one, difficult enough to actually right. make me want to experiment with different situations. I just kind of found a build I liked in Transistor as with Bastion, just wanted to use that the whole game. Yeah. And those, so these games are really versatile and there's so much going on under the hood and there's so many customization options. And they really want you to take advantage of that. And I think that, you know, the game itself would be better if I did take advantage of that. But I just didn't want to. Yeah. And then I find Hades that forces you to. Yeah. And also it's super fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it, it's super fun because it makes you engage with those systems in a way that the previous games didn't. Yeah. And you can lose any run in Hades, mm-hmm. no matter what. Like it it just there's never that there's never that coasting, really. At least not for me. I'm not good enough to coast in Hades. <laughs> yeah. It's like I said, Hades is where you get the melding of the aesthetic and the and the underlying systems that work perfectly for me. Yeah. But you can see you can see the bones of it starting in Bastion. Yeah. And um This is a hell of a first game for a little studio. Yeah, right. Still really, really impressive as a game. Still really fun to play. Yeah. I had a good time immediately. Like within three minutes of this game, I was having fun off to the races, making progress feeling good. This is a good game. So do you have any final thoughts about this game? I have only one. Okay. Long live Queen Anne. And you love that ankle game. I freaking love it. So ugly. It's just hideous. <laughs> I love her. All right. I think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you listen to this podcast on. For more information about the show, notes on this episode, uh, you can go to neverwasagamer.com or you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah. Thanks so, so much for listening. As we said, next time, our next uh, kind of classic indie game is Jonathan Blow's Braid. Joe Blow's Braid. Sure. (laughs) I'm excited for Michelle to play Braid. I'm excited for her to get to know Jonathan Blow a little bit. (laughs) I think it's going to be really fun. So we'll see you next time after Michelle has learned that being a mopey boy hung up on the past is an essential part of being a gamer.